0: This week on What It Takes, from the military to Tesla to electric buses, how being deployed in the army helped Proterra's CEO deploy electric transportation fleets.
1: It's good for kind of the keep calm, carry on mentality. When people tend to bring me, I refer to it as like a box of broken parts. And so if you're the founder or the CEO of of an organization, you you shouldn't be surprised when most of what is brought to you is bad news.
0: We'll hear from Ryan Popple about taking Proterra through the valley of death to a top maker of EV buses. First, though, a quick word about our sponsor, Mission Solar. How do we ensure our electric cars and buses are using clean juice? Well, solar is a really good option. Better yet, American-made solar. Mission Solar is a top U.S. maker of solar modules with a 200-megawatt production facility in Texas. They are coming out with an even higher-quality, higher-powered module later this year. So if you want the highest-performing American-made solar panels on the market... Go to missionsolar.com. Hey, welcome everybody to another edition of What It Takes, an interview series produced by Powerhouse and Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, and in this series, we hear from founders of the most influential clean energy companies about how they navigate this crazy market. This week, Powerhouse CEO Emily Kirsch talks with Ryan Popple. He's the CEO of Proterra. And like a lot of guests on this series, Ryan is really open about some of the struggles he's faced at the company and also as a venture capitalist and early employee at Tesla. And he talks a lot about his leadership style in dealing with Proterra's stops and starts as it tries to break open the market for electric buses. The conversation was recorded live at Powerhouse's headquarters. To learn more about future speakers and attending a live event, go to powerhouse.fund and click on the events tab. Shale Khan, my Interchange co-host, kicks it off with some thoughts on electric buses, and then Powerhouse's Emily Kirsch takes over.
2: So sometimes I think uh, things sneak up on you a bit. Uh, in the clean tech market, and I've found at least that often the things that fly under the radar for a while end up being the things that are the most world changing. Uh, so here's my confession and and my example. I have been reading about, analyzing, writing about, talking about vehicle electrification for the better part of a decade now. But I, as with I think many people, um, spent most of that time focusing purely on passenger vehicles, and as a result. It took me until just a few years ago to start really paying attention to electric buses. Uh, And when I did, I can say I was astounded. So let me see if I can astound you quickly here if you're, you're not yet at the point that I reached a couple of years ago. Here's some things I think you should know about electric buses. So first, on a total cost of ownership basis, ownership over the lifetime of the vehicle, in many cases, electric buses are already cheaper than internal combustion alternatives. Uh, And when they're not today, they will be in the next couple of years. This is happening faster in the bus world than it is happening in the passenger vehicle world. There are already something like 400,000 e-buses, as they are known in short, on the road globally. Um, Bloomberg forecasts that this is an incredible statistic, so I just want to coda with this note. An incredible 42% of the global bus fleet will be electric by 2025. 42% not of new sales, but of the fleet. That represents something like 1.2 million e-buses. And that is just miles ahead of the pace of electrification of passenger vehicles, which will be around 3% at that point. So it's going much faster. Now, a lot of that is in China, where there are entire city fleets that are well on their way toward full electrification. Um, It's happening there faster than it's happening anywhere else. And China is fully bought in on the electrification of city bus fleets and is moving with typical breakneck pace to adopt e-buses. But the U.S. is awakening to this value quite quickly as well. Um, And within the U.S. in particular, one company, Proterra, represents over half of that market. Which is all just to say that while the incredible market for electric buses, why they make so much sense, um, and why they are the vanguard of electrification of transportation snuck up on me, uh, it certainly did not sneak up on Ryan Popple. You can, I think, attach many impressive accolades to Ryan's resume, um, ranging from his service in Iraq to his tenure in the early life of Tesla. And I look forward to hearing about all of that over the next hour. But to me, what he's doing right now is perhaps the most impressive. He's leading a company that manufactures vehicles, electric vehicles, here in California and is absolutely dominating the market that is likely to be the first of any market to completely eliminate the internal combustion engine. Let's hope he pulls it off. With no further ado, Emily Kirsch, interviewing Ryan Popple.
3: Welcome to What It Takes and welcome to Powerhouse. I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO here at Powerhouse, and we are thrilled to have you, Ryan, here tonight with us on What It Takes. Thank you. You're welcome. So Ryan, you grew up uh, in a farming suburb outside of Chicago and I learned that you had this interesting desire as a child to spend time outdoors in freezing weather. Tell us why.
1: Yeah, so um, I grew up in Elgin, Illinois, which at this point is probably just a a suburb of uh, Chicago. But uh, when I was growing up there, probably half of the community was agriculture and half was kind of a bedroom community on the train stop on the way out from Chicago. And I don't know where it comes from, but from the earliest age, I've hated to be inside. So if my parents took us to Chicago for the weekend, which is like a good thing to do for your kids and take you to a museum or a zoo or something like that. I was like grumpy in the backseat of the car. And it's not like there was a massive amount of stuff to do in Elgin, Illinois. Like you could fish in the Fox River for fish you probably shouldn't have eaten. Um, You could get like bitten by mosquitoes. And in the winter, it would get really cold. And I think my mom knew that there was something a little bit wrong with me that like I would play outside till I, she would insist that I would come in And, like, I'd have to, like, re-thaw my feet. Um, I'd build (laughs) snow caves for myself. Um, One of my favorite uh, movie characters to play was Luke Skywalker in the Star Wars movie where he's on the frozen planet. And I would actually walk around in the backyard and then pretend that, like, I'd gotten so cold that I just pitched over like he does. (laughs) Which was a really disturbing sight for my mom, like, looking out the back of the house. But, um... I, you know, a week or two after I graduated from high school, um, I got on a train and headed out to New Mexico to work at a ranch and I did that for two summers, um, before college and, uh, during college. So I've just always, um, I've always really liked to play hooky and like get outside and like, that's, um, I'm kind of a reluctant, um, hardworking executive.
3: (laughs) Uh, Tell us about, so after the ranch experience, you went to college, tell us a little bit about where'd you go? What did you study?
1: Yeah, so I had a super stable childhood, um, which I was probably didn't appreciate and was very bored with. Um, I was born in Elgin, Illinois. I graduated high school from Elgin, Illinois. So people who have these like tough stories of their families moving all over and switching schools, like I, I had like the perfect wasp like upper Midwest childhood. And so by the when I was ready to go to school, I kind of drew a, a line or circle on a map that was at least 500 miles away from home. And I just wanted to kind of get out and wander. And when I visited schools on the East Coast, one of the things I was struck by is just how different it was than the Midwest. Um, So I applied to a bunch of schools, most of which I hadn't even visited. And I ended up getting into a couple. And I visited William and Mary and um, thought, I'll go to school in Virginia. So it wasn't much more planned out than that, but it was just, it was a different environment. And, um, so I went to New Mexico for the summer and then headed to Virginia for college. And what'd you study? Um, finance and history. Nice. I would have probably just studied history, but, um, I was worried that I'd have to make electric buses someday.
3: So. <laughs> Good premonition. Uh, and you were in ROTC while you were in college. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. So that wasn't, um, that wasn't super planned either. Um, I didn't have, I didn't apply to any of the service academies. Um, I had done boy scouts and was an Eagle scout and and service was a tradition in our family, but the way I got introduced to ROTC was at the, um, rock climbing club in college. So, um, there was uh, a relatively young guy who was a college professor and he was a really good climber. And um, it turned out he was a former, or he was an army ranger who was an instructor in um, ROTC. And he was a really good recruiter because he convinced me that being in the U.S. Army would basically be camping and rock climbing, which (laughs) I really liked. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, but I mean, it was, in retrospect, it was a really good fit. Like, I probably would have been fairly bored going to Wall Street right after college. Again, sort of that outside thing. Like, and when I got interviewed for my ROTC scholarship... And this colonel asked me, you know, so what are you, what are you interested in the U.S. Army? And I kind of explained. And he was like, you know, it's not like just camping with guns. Like <laughs> this is... Um, but I thought like, you know, and actually like the, the job was very outdoorsy. He um, spent a ton of time outside. So in some ways it was like a... It was a fairly good place to stick a 22-year-old Ryan Popple because I was fairly comfortable being outside a lot.
3: Mm-hmm. And so. instead of uh, going, going to wall street or doing the kind of boring thing. Uh, tell us about what happened after college.
1: Sure. So, um, I joined, I commissioned as an active duty, um, armor cavalry officer, which is the tanks, um, in 2000, which was like the last year, I think of sort of the pre or the last year of Pax Americana in that like the cold war was over. The Berlin wall had come down and, there really wasn't a whole lot of um, bad stuff happening in the world. Some things were at a slow boil. But um, so the first 18 months that I was on active duty, it was kind of the like Bosnia and Kosovo or South Korea were the deployments you could get where you could end up in harm's way. Or a major scandal for the U.S. military was um, Somalia, where um, it's a tragedy. We lost 19 soldiers, but like that's a bad day in Iraq or Afghanistan now. Um So, um, I was on active duty when nine 11 happened. And I think for everybody who was in the military, um, just everything changed after nine 11. So for the first 18 months, you know, a lot of training exercises, um, a lot of like be all you can be. Um, but you know, the, the fit hit the Shan on nine 11 and basically, you can swear on this podcast. Okay. Every (laughs) active duty army unit was going to go somewhere. So we knew that like things were getting real for us when, desert colored gear started getting dropped off. And we didn't even know where we were gonna go. We just knew there was so much, in a lot of ways, anger that like the US was gonna send um, forces everywhere. So we ended up um, going to Kuwait and then into Iraq in 2003.
3: And you were a platoon leader in Iraq. Um, That's right. And tell us some, just, I mean, to the extent that you can, a bit about one, what that was like, two, are there any lessons from that that you have applied now to your role as CEO?
1: Yeah. So, um, you, you learn a lot. I mean, I think that the best part about being in the army for me was especially coming from a, you know, relatively small to medium sized city in the Midwest that was fairly homogenous. Um, I think if you, if you serve in a real unit in the military, it's, it's like, I don't know how you could be racist after that. Um, the, probably the military is the last real melting pot we have in our society. Mm -hmm. And, While I don't know that selective service would be a good idea, um, like I I think I got a lot more exposure to people from all sorts of backgrounds, geographies, races, religions. Um, And so if you've seen how tough people are, regardless of the color of their skin or their religion, and you also see people who look exactly like you who could let you down in a tough situation, I think you lose your... um, you lose a lot of those gender, uh, generalizations. I, I think the same thing about gender. Uh, we had scout helicopter pilots who were women. We had combat medics who were women. Um, we had combat medics who were wounded. Um, and so, you know, the idea that like when someone tells you, oh, that gender or that race can't do that thing, that got pretty well extinguished from my consciousness over there. Um, in terms of caring for people in an environment where you where you are leading them, I think that got um, uh, instilled in us both in training and overseas. And so the best officers I worked with before they would have a bite of food or before they would do anything that was personally comfortable, they would make sure that they knew how the rest of the unit was doing. Um, and that was um, that sense that when you're in a leadership role, you should not be using it as, a privilege. You should be um, you should be taking care of people. It's an obligation. Mm-hmm. I think that was really good training. Um, and then you know, in, in the putting, I, I tend to be kind of an optimist, and so putting a positive spin on things. Like you, you're not going to run into anything in the business world that's like a bad day over there. So you know, um, it's good for kind of the keep calm, carry on mentality. Um, it, when people tend to bring me, I refer to it as like a box of broken parts. And so if you're the founder or the CEO of, the, of an organization, um, you know, like you shouldn't be surprised when most of what is brought to you is bad news. Um, and so like, I, there's not really, it, it's not that bad. You know, we're selling electric buses. We can figure it out.
3: <laughs> did, it, did your experience there impact how you think about risk?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we did a lot of stuff um, in the army that was inherently dangerous if you did it incorrectly. Um, it is not a good idea to exit a moving plane at night. Um, it, you know, it's, it's some of the stuff that we played with um, or like, you know, going out to just a simple thing like throwing hand grenades. Like you don't really want to pull the pin on a hand grenade and drop it. Um, so there's a lot of training and thought about how you do things that are risky, but do them with uh, a plan B, a plan C, um, you know, enough, uh, enough resiliency and you know a great example of this and it's not just from the military but if you look at how like a pilot preps a plane they don't rely on their in- intelligence or their mm-hmm. virtue they have a checklist and there's a pilot and there's a co-pilot and there's an autopilot system but like that designing a system so that you can you can be resilient to the failures that will happen not that may happen but that's been good training for me like I There's a tool I use, and it it helps me kind of keep things in perspective. Every quarter, I list the top five to seven things that are like the keep me up at night stuff, and that's like column A. Column B is um, what is the positive resolution? Like, what would I like to happen? Column C is the negative resolution. Column D, and this is the really important part of the exercise, is the countermeasure. So assume that it's going to go wrong. What are you going to do? And then column E, which really helps as I reflect back on it, is what actually happened. And what I learned by doing that every quarter, and I've got, you know, now, I don't know, 12 or 16 quarters of this stuff, is that it's it's never as big of a risk as you think it is. And the stuff that you think would absolutely knock your organization flat on on its back, it it doesn't. Um, you know, so you, you can't control everything. Um and, you know, I, I shade them red and green in terms of how they actually turned out. So every quarter, one or two will be red. Um, you know, but when I look back on the stuff I used to worry about, I you know, it kind of makes me laugh because it's like uh, ended up not being that big of a deal.
3: Did somebody write that down? I definitely want to adopt that. That I, sounds
1: extremely useful. I can send you. It's one of many awful spreadsheets. So. <laughs>
3: please, please do. I'm, I'm definitely a fan. Um, and so then Fast forward us to, so you went from being deployed in Iraq eventually to Tesla. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tell us about, about that journey and then how you, how that evolved into venture capital.
1: So I, I finished up in the army in 2004 and I wanted to get an MBA to transition to the business world. A lot of, a lot of my class or year group in the military, um, when they got out, they went to law school or business school. It's fairly common. So I went to business school, um, and I went to HBS and spent the first couple months kind of, you know, wandering around thinking about like what what do I want to do with the rest of my life? I think I was 26 or 27 years old, and um, I'd been pretty busy for the last four years, and so it was an opportunity to like really take stock um, of of what I wanted to do with uh, a couple opportunities. One being that like. I was home safe and sound, had all my fingers, all my toes. Like, I was really lucky in that regard. And... Um,
3: were you lucky? Like, how many people... Did you have people close to you who didn't come home at all or with their fingers and toes?
1: Yeah. Yeah. We were... Um, it, you know, it's a, it's a funny thing to think about because um, on a... Like, if you know the history of the military or the army, um, it feels a little bit, like, whiny to complain about a place like Iraq or Afghanistan Um, the infantry division that I served with landed at Normandy in 1944. So like I look at some of those photos and I think we didn't really have it that bad. At the same time, there are friends of mine who are not here anymore. So like it's a, you know, I never want to like over dramatize what, um, what happens um, because I don't necessarily think um, like my generation has put up with a lot. I only did one tour in Iraq. There are people who did, four or five like that's a huge burden and the history of the army you know i baghdad wasn't gettysburg so um you know but yeah it was it was a real deployment um it wasn't that bad in the grand scheme of things but that's a pretty hard thing to say to somebody's family um and you definitely come home from a situation like that or any tough situation that involves life and death circumstances with some questions about like so you know what do i want to do now Um, and you feel, I I think in some ways, a strong sense of obligation to like make something of it. Um, you know, I felt that way about my life. I felt that way about my marriage that like, this is amazing. I get my wife back. Um, you know, and then I got into business school, which also, um, I was a good student at William and Mary, but I'm not a genius. So getting into Harvard, I was like, wow, they must've messed up. Um, (laughs) so I wanted to do something with it and, um, I couldn't get too excited about, um, doing something that didn't really have any relevance. So the first thing that really grabbed me was thinking about something with the energy and with energy and the the environment. But before that point I attended like all the company workshops, probably like really bored look on my face and a lot of the the different industry presentations, but the energy ones, I was like, I, I could get pretty interested about that.
3: And did that carry into your work then when you joined Kleiner, Kleiner Perkins?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I was, I'd been at Tesla for about three years. Um, it, I joined Tesla um, in the summer of 2007 and I, I don't know, I was probably somewhere between the 150th and the 200th employee, which at the time I thought like, oh, I'm kind of late to this party. Um, and now they have like 40,000 employees, which blows my mind. But um, I, I was also there as the Great Recession hit. So that will, I think for my career... Working with the group of people that got Tesla through 2008 and nine is probably the hardest work I'll ever do. It was so bad that when I look back on it, I'm like, you, you were all crazy for thinking that was going to work out. <laughs> um, I mean, it was really tight. Mm-hmm. And um, every macro force was pointed against you mm-hmm. when you're selling a $100,000 sports car and the Great Recession sets in mm-hmm. and you took the money up front and you spent most of it. <laughs> um. That's I'm not that great of an did accountant. Did you did you
3: advise against that or did you
1: It had already just happened. not say anything. Yeah. yeah, I mean we were already we had something like 55 million dollars of reservations on the balance sheet, but after I started I was like, but our cash balance is less than that. So, um when we go into production, we're going to be even more cash flow negative than a startup normally is. So, it was a it's pretty tough. Um, I, it was a really good boot camp for me, though, in terms of how does the plumbing and how do the gears of an organization really work? We had to literally think about like nickels and dimes on a cash flow basis um, to get through that period. And so um, Kleiner started recruiting a team to do green tech investing, and I was um, recruited to be part of their first dedicated fund for that. And I, they asked me to work on transportation stuff. It was a tough decision, um, but I thought doing venture capital, especially in clean tech, would be a really interesting opportunity to have a lot of leverage in a space I cared about. And I also kind of wanted to know, like, so what goes on behind the curtain over there?
3: Mm-hmm. And so in parallel to, to your life journey that's happening, there's this other person's journey, Dale Hill, the founder of Proterra, mm-hmm. who started the company back in 2004. And so at what point do your journeys sync?
1: So Kleiner asked... Um, What else was going to happen as a result of batteries getting cheap and the other systems in an EV um, coming to scale, like motors and power electronics? And they were already um, knee-deep or maybe neck-deep into Fisker, so they were not interested in doing anything else on the car side. They had not invested in Tesla, which was a bit of a miss. And they had invested in Fisker, so that's pretty bad EV alpha. Um, <laughs> so they were like, "But we know there's more going on in EV so like um, let's not uh, let's not miss this whole sector. Um, what else is out there? And we started thinking about frameworks of like who would be the most logical early adopters, let's set aside the car space. And in some ways, I think Kleiner's uh, getting burned by Fisker was actually a really good um impetus for kind of forcing us out of what Shale mentioned in terms of the focus on passenger cars. That was like, we were not going to be able to touch anything that had four wheels on it um, and was in the car or in the passenger car sector. So we started looking around and what we realized is that the value proposition for electrification may in fact be much, much deeper in other vehicle markets. And we mapped out all the vehicle markets. I still have the chart and it was like a simple matrix of like how many miles does the vehicle live or drive a year and how inefficient is the vehicle and the only thing that we could find that was um that was or the one that it, that stood out as absolutely extreme was an urban bus and you know i credit china has a clear focus on um clean tech uh, they're probably still using too much coal but somebody in the ministry of science and technology in China must have done that same analysis. And they were like, okay, we, we electrify that sector first. And they threw a massive amount of incentives to start scaling it in China. In the U S you know, we tend to do things more by the creative and destructive private sector method. So we started looking around and, um, we were like, who's doing electric buses. And so I met Dale in Colorado in 2011, um, I don't even know if they had 20 employees. Um, they had one customer at the time. Um, Kleiner invested in their effectively their series a along with GM. And then I served as a board observer for a couple years and the company got itself into kind of the same spot that a lot of tech companies get to when the technology works. Um, but they have trouble becoming a business. So Kleiner asked me in 2014 to keep an eye on the place. And, um, and serve as the interim CEO for the summer while they did a CEO search, and then they decided that, um, as, and the board did as well, that this would work. And it, you know, one of the neat things about it is, I think having been through Tesla um, and having met Martin Eberhard, who was the founder of Tesla, um, I have a lot of respect for founders. In fact, when I was talking to some of your your crew earlier, I was very quick to say, I'm not a founder. I'm not an early stage guy. Um, I, I'm better at the late stage scale problems. So I have a ton of respect for dale because i think he started proterra on his amex card (laughs) and i'm not wired to do that (laughs) like i'm not building that risk spreadsheet right
0: You know, one of the things I love about this series, What It Takes, is that we hear from entrepreneurs from all walks of life who are here in America, building American companies, showing that despite our challenges as a country, we can still lead the world in innovation in business model and technology innovation. One of those companies is Mission Solar Energy. Now, Mission Solar has a 200 megawatt manufacturing facility in the heart of America, supporting American workers in Texas. But that's not all. It has an R&D facility, and it is working hard day in and day out to improve the efficiency and performance of solar modules, and it has the best-in-class modules that beat international performance standards by three times. In addition, it has this central location, so it makes it easier for developers to access those panels and get them to projects on time and on schedule. Mission Solar is going to be introducing a higher output module in the U.S. market later this year, and so customers are gonna to continue to experience the high power American quality products designed and assembled and engineered in the US, but they're gonna be even better. So check out Mission Solar's best in class product line at missionsolar.com slash products and support American Innovation.
3: But you did, you 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 left Venture Capital, you know, one of the most well recognized firms in the world to join what was at the time still a relatively risky company. Mm-hmm. What what inspired you to do that?
1: Um, You know, I think at the heart of it is I I was worried that if I transitioned out and we messed up the CEO search, the company would not get another chance.
3: Was it just like, I'm just going to do this myself?
1: A little bit. I'm um, a little bit of a control freak. Um, (laughs) Like, I don't mind flying in a plane as long as the pilots are like legit pilots. Do
3: you check them before you get to your seat kind of take a
1: look at them, but, but like it, <laughs> in all seriousness no. like if you get your pilot's license and you call me up and say ryan let's go flying on saturday no like i don't do that um if you want to like i don't I, i'm not into like amateurs who have my life in their hands um so even with driving like venture capital we often had a car service and i once got so frustrated with a driver who's driving me to the airport that i was like i'm just gonna drive the car like you were the worst driver did you No, that would have been somewhat extreme. Um, (laughs) I was like, just check your email. But he was a terrible driver. He's like veering all over the place. Mm. Um, So, yeah, I'm a a bit of a control freak. um, And I did, and it might have been hubris. I I thought, all right, I don't want the company to go through another leadership transition. I think I understand what's going on. I love, like, at, at the core of it, I totally get the value proposition. And I was like, man, like, we are either going to figure this out or 10 years from now, I'm going to see electric buses all over the place and I'm going to be really frustrated. <laughs> or one of my kids is going to be like, didn't you work on electric buses? <laughs> <Did I? laughs> um, so, but I did, like I've always cared a lot about Proterra. It was one of the companies within our portfolio where I wished Kleiner could do more stuff like that. And one of the hard things about cleantech is it's hard. So you very much have an S-curve. You invest for a long time. you got to deal with the valley of death. If you make it onto the other side, you're probably not going to get chased. So you can end up building a very big company. But in a generalist venture capital firm, uh, a hardware clean tech company, which we need a lot of to solve a lot of these problems, is going to struggle for attention if you can do Snapchat. Um, And I was going to give another example, but that's how little I know about consumer (laughs) internet. Um, You know, so I think a lot of it came from the fact that like, I just was frustrated with like clean tech getting screwed up and beaten up. And I was like, you know what? Let's just, let's do this. Um, I think I'm probably more of an operator and a manager than I am an investor. It was fascinating to be an investor and like I enjoyed it. But I think some of my colleagues must have known that something was a little wrong because I like I would get up and walk around and like walk into their office and be like, hey, what you working on? And they're like, I'm studying these. Industry macro trends, like go back to work. <laughs> Whereas in an operating environment, and you know Holly can attest this, like I don't get a minute to myself most days. You're constantly, sort of like swarming on problems and meeting as a team. And I, I'm definitely a people person, so uh, I I was excited to go back to a managerial environment.
3: Mm-hmm. And this is probably a perfect time too to say, uh, for those who don't know, what exactly is Proterra?
1: Oh yeah, um, <laughs> so we um, we are the leading manufacturer of heavy-duty electric buses for the North American market. We build um, soup to nuts in electric bus. We do everything from the modules, the battery packs. Um, we design the drive line. We don't build our own electric motors. We buy those. But um, the body is a carbon fiber composite vehicle. So it's about 4,000 pounds lighter than the chassis of a steel bus. And um, our company got started with our founder really booking the first sale of a heavy-duty electric bus. Um, in the highly regulated U.S. transit market. And today we serve over 50 customers. Um, We have um, about a one-year backlog right now. And so we're cranking out electric buses as fast as we can. And we've got buses in Seattle, Park City, Foothill Transit, down in SoCal, San Jose, Stockton.
3: I think Um, I counted at least 43 cities that you guys are active in. Is that
1: Yeah, I think we're... I think we have vehicles on the road in in about two dozen cities, and then we have hard orders or firm orders from another set of folks that represent, when you add them all up, it represents about 10% of the transit fleets now in the U.S.,
3: and it's all over. How many buses is that? How many are actually out there now, and how many will be, let's say, in 12 months?
1: So the size of the bus fleet that needs to be cleaned up on city bus alone in the U.S. is 70,000 buses. Um, We don't report precise numbers right now, but if you take us and our prime competitor, which is a Chinese company, BYD, you probably have all told less than 1,000 electric buses deployed in the U.S. right now. So um, we've got like another 69,000 to go, and they turn over every 10 to 12 years. Then the school bus market, um, which is a brilliant idea, transport kids and expose them to diesel fuel, um, that's 400,000 buses, and I think that's going to be the next market. Uh, So it's an enormous market. I think we're at a good tipping point in terms of customers placing orders, but it's going to be a 10-year journey if everyone stops buying diesel buses tomorrow and only 10% of the market right now is ordering, or only 10% of the new buses ordered roughly are electrics.
3: Mm. How much does policy drive these decisions in this shift?
1: Initially, it had almost no effect or there almost was no policy. Um, but in some ways, I think um, that created kind of a tougher and more resilient industry. Proterra didn't; it never received a five hundred million dollar DOE loan like we got at Tesla or that Fisker got. And I think um, the fact that did you get
3: re- any DOE RPE money.
1: I don't believe so. Okay. The only funding. Oh, actually, we did a uh, high efficiency transmission, but I think it was if it was a couple hundred thousand dollars, I'd be surprised. But Proterra was ineligible for programs like the Advanced Technology Vehicle Manufacturing Program, because our policies in the United States are totally car-focused. Like, it is 1950s, everybody should be in the suburbs and have two and a half cars, and so even the incentives we put in place, it's only recently that heavy-duty has been catching up. Um, and it's important that we take heavy-duty seriously, because it's it's roughly half of the vehicle emissions, and it tends to be some of the most dangerous tailpipe emissions our cars primarily run on gasoline, our buses and trucks run on diesel. Um, so policy's catching up, but it's interesting because it's actually happening from a grassroots level and coming up, not from the federal level and coming down. So the first real overarching policy we saw was a mandate in an individual fleet that said, we're gonna voluntarily go all electric by 2030. And then that started getting replicated.
3: Nice. Uh, let's talk about money. How much had the company raised? You said you had already raised from Kleiner and GM. Um, I know Matsui invested. Mm-hmm. So, how much had, had the company already raised when you joined? And then, how much have you had to raise since then? And what was that process like?
1: I think when I joined, the company had raised maybe a little bit less than 100 million. Um, and at this point in total, we've raised over 300 million in equity and 30 million in venture debt. Um, the Last um, two rounds we've done have been later stage rounds. And in some ways, they've, they've almost been alternatives to going public. Um, and what we found is that the late stage markets are pretty healthy. There, there's a lot of demand out there for companies that are in revenue and that are growing. Um, so I, I would actually say the hardest time to finance Proterra was when you need more money than an early stage pre-revenue startup But you're not, you don't yet have the proof points in terms of market share. So it's never easy to raise money. I don't ever want to like take that for granted. But the company's been really fortunate in the last probably 24 months. Um, We have a great CFO and a great finance team, and um, we've we've tended to beat our numbers in terms of orders. So that's been, um, you know, there's a lot of tangible evidence that we can show to investors.
3: And this is your first time as CEO, right? Of That's a company. right. And uh, as you decided to, to take on this role, how did you know how to do this?
1: That implies that I knew how to do this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think having seen a lot of Kleiner um, portfolio companies, one of the things I realized is that um, there really isn't a, uh, like a specific graduate school you can go to to prepare yourself to be a CEO. And being, Please tell me if there is. Right, um, it. Um, you know, you, you have to be a jack of all trades. You have to be ambidextrous um, functionally. Um, you tend to, you need a couple things where you have a deep core, so you can be, you can be a product heavy CEO. Um, you can be a strategy heavy CEO. Like I, I, I don't think a CEO should be good at nothing. Um, I don't know what my employees think about that, but like I tend to be more mm-hmm. on kind of the technology strategy side. I know the finance and venture capital piece, um, you know, and our, our CFO gets frustrated sometimes because I'm, I'm actually a terrible accountant, like from a finance and accounting background. But like, I try to pretend that I know what the numbers are. Um, so like, I'll, I like to dig through our financial reports and stuff like that. So I'd say I'm, I'm probably like a quantitatively heavy um, CEO, but I'm not an engineer. So I, I can't second guess an engineer about what voltage the vehicle should be designed to run at but I can understand why one voltage would be better than others. Or I can, I can think through what the supply chain vulnerability is going to be if we push too far out on the frontier of a specific technology. So I kind of looked at it and said, all right, um, I've been through a similar situation at Tesla. So I, I know sort of how one works a company through this problem. I'm very passionate about electrification of transport. I think it is a it's an essential technology for moving us through kind of the challenge of the century. Um, you know, and I had enough general management training that the size of the company didn't concern me too much. At the time that I started at Proterra, it's probably a little bit less than 200 employees. And um, one of my last jobs in the Army, I was the executive officer for a 220 person company, or company being unit. So I was the, the number two officer in a 200 person organization. So like you get a lot of training fairly early on in the military about how to organize and lead reasonably sized teams. So, you know, and then I flipped a coin and figured let's give this a shot. But I think it really came down to, I kind of looked at it and said like, I I've got to figure this out and I don't trust a hired gun CEO to do that.
3: Mm. Uh, what, what were the hardest parts about it?
1: There's um, when you go into a new role, Regardless of what what level of that organization you go into, um, you have sort of the glossy cover photo of the thing you're going into, and you would think that I knew exactly what I was getting into. Um, I'd been sitting in board meetings for like the last three years for the company, um, and so there definitely was a, a period of like peeling back the onion, and and like I had I had a plan, yeah, you know, and as they say, it plan is the first casualty. Um, and as I started working that plan, I realized like, okay, there's there's bigger, deeper challenges we're going to have to work through. Um, what were those? Mainly on the product side. So I thought going into it that the company was struggling with manufacturing, that like, gosh, they just can't um, build the vehicle or from an operational perspective, the manufacturing process isn't isn't good enough. And therefore the vehicles aren't functioning as well as they should. And therefore customers aren't placing the repeat orders. I went around and I met with our first half dozen customers in probably my first 90 days. You got a bunch of stuff you got to get all over, but you definitely want to get out there and talk to your early adopters as soon as possible. And I asked him two questions, uh, primarily. One was, why did you buy anything from a small startup um, that, you know, why did you want to be Proterra's first or second customer? And the second was, what would it take for you to buy nothing but electric buses? And the answer to the first question was really, that was inspiring. I realized there was way more pent-up demand than I thought. The answer to the second question was really chilling because they said, yeah, this is exciting. I bought a couple of these, but I'm not going to buy any more unless they can do this, 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 and they're at the following price. And um, that was way off of where we were. And it wasn't even, I don't think the company or the board realized how serious how much more development we needed to do to get to what we'd call product market fit. And so as I worked through that problem, one of the challenges was um, we didn't even necessarily have all of the people that we needed to do some of that engineering. So we had some really strong engineers in some areas, but we had some gaps. And um, it, it can be, it's really hard when even if you have the capital and the plan, you've got to recruit people. And in the EV space, even in 2014, 2015, it's a hyper-competitive space for engineering talent. So getting the first kind of two high-voltage engineers to start working on kind of our next-gen system and then watching two become four and four become eight, um, that was the hardest part because during that phase, when you only have two people in a group and they've got to recruit the next two people, they can't do any work. Mm -hmm. So like you're you're just kind of watching sand run out of the hourglass and everybody who's in a startup – you feel that time pressure, that you have a burn rate. So you got to get it done. And um, and there are very specific people and resources that you need.
3: You guys have obviously raised a lot of capital. Were there moments where you thought you were going to run out? And if not that, what were the darkest moments that you've been through with the company?
1: You know, I, I think one of the things that, that helped me going into this experience is I had spent about five years at Kleiner and that I had been in the corporate finance team, which was kind of the everything finance team at Tesla. Um, so I'd seen, I mean, by the time I went into Proterra, I'd probably worked on either side of a billion dollars of venture capital financing, either early stage or late stage. Um, and so that was one of the benefits of spending four years at Kleiner, is just seeing investment presentation after investment presentation and start starting to understand what things a company has to accomplish to get its next round of funding and what it doesn't. Um, the other thing that helped a lot is um, I have a lot of trust for our investors, but not in the, um, in that, like, I, I I expect them to be investors and I expect them to hold us accountable. Um, and I expect them to want to know what's going on. So like, I, I, I don't, it's not a it's not behind a curtain in terms of, I wonder what the investors are thinking. You know, if you work as a VC for a while, that job is hard in its own way. So one of the things we've tried to do is just really establish a good rapport and trust with our board and with our existing investors and give them the good, the bad, and the ugly. Because when I was a VC, the thing that, um, I mean, unless a company, certainly if a company just has a bad idea or the technology doesn't work, that'll, that'll get you cut off. That's, risk management for VC. But the other thing that can get a company cut off is if you lose um, that trust. If your investors just are fundamentally frustrated, they know you're not telling them what's actually going on at the company, that's a much harder company to finance.
3: Were there things that were hard to tell them that were happening?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I really try to give our board the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, So it's also, it helps, like... You know, there are expressions like this is the loneliest job. I don't know that that's true. I hardly ever get any time to myself. (laughs) Um, But if you're, I think um, most people in a leadership position believe that they need to absorb negative and exude positive. So if that's the case, like if somebody brings me really bad news, I don't get to go out in the parking lot and like kick rocks and whine about it. Like I've got to figure it out and I'm not going to replicate that anxiety But I am going to reach out to the chairman of my board and say I'm having a really bad day. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of it is I trust that our board and our investors also want Proterra to be a huge success. So I'm not afraid to tell them, you know, we thought we're going to win that deal and we got clobbered. Or we're going to be delayed by three to six months on this development program. Um, You know, I, I try to do the best job I can at managing risk. But I also try to be fair with myself that like, when you're doing new hard stuff, like trying to get a bus to go a thousand miles on a test track, that's just physically hard. No one's done it before and there's a reason no one's done it
3: before. What's the hardest thing that you had to tell a board member?
1: Um, Typically the hardest decision is when you're actually transitioning board members um, because uh, boards and management teams need to evolve. And the, the situation at a you know, million dollar revenue company versus getting to like a pre-IPO stage company, you fast forward through a lot of stages really quickly. So it's like you got a kindergartner and then they're going off to college and it's a short period of time. Um, If your market starts taking off like ours did, our market really started um, hitting in 2015. That's when the orders started spiking up. Um, And so when you've got somebody who, you know, really cares about the company, but you've got to... You've got to build a board around the company and you've got to be refreshing the board constantly. Um, So that's a hard decision, but we, we try to, you know, I think everybody who's ever been on our board has had, um, has, has really fallen in love with the company. It's, you know, in some ways it's kind of a fun thing. Like we're building 40 foot electric buses. Um, You know, the other, the other tough, just um, letting people know that in spite everyone's best efforts, you just were not able to get something done or risk manifested in a way you didn't anticipate. And like, you got a problem. But I, I, the latter conversation, like I, you know, I've got a tough board. Like they, they've been, almost all of them have been through thick and thin with this company. And I think they have that kind of long-term vision for the company. I don't have a a board that, you know, like I don't have a hedge fund board where they're, you know, wondering day to day if they should buy or sell.
3: Yeah, Um, what have been the, the hardest lessons to learn?
1: Um, probably the, the hardest thing to learn about this job is just to be, uh, to learn how to protect yourself from bias. Um, you can spend your time on whatever you want to spend your time on as a CEO, and you can spend your time with the people you have the most in common with, or the people who are doing the most interesting thing. And if you, in your perspective, but if you do that, you've got to recognize the fact that every person you spend time with is going to consciously or subconsciously, intentionally or unintentionally, um, sort of influence the, the, the CEO's compass point. And it is so important as a senior leader in an organization to remain objective and to think about the best interests of the overall company. Um, you know, so I've really tried to be thoughtful about making sure that there's not any sort of perceived bias towards any particular employee. Um, you know, in Silicon Valley, we can be quite incestuous about our teams and our hiring, And it's great to hire people who you've worked with before and you trust, but you cannot create a caste system in your company. You got to hold everybody accountable. You got to be fair. Um, The so on that bias point though, like really learning to see what you don't want to see, because like if you have a hard day and you go into a meeting in the afternoon, it's a program review. Every one of your instincts is going to be don't ask the question that's going to like uncover a rock and reveal the news you do not want on a Friday afternoon, but that's your job. And so, and if I'm not doing that, um, there's no way our board is going to know what's going on. So um, really that bias piece, knowing that like, even if people, I was having a conversation earlier today with one of our team members, like everyone at our company has the company's best interests in their heart and they often disagree. So, I, I don't have like a, a cabal of anti-Protera or anti-EV people buried in the organization. You know, it's not like trying to turn a big ship where you've got tons of employees and you've got a bias in the organization against EV. It's more like, all right, you're you got your heart on the on your sleeve and you really believe we should do X and you really believe you should do Y and you're both smart and committed. So how do I make an unbiased, objective decision and not filter any of your input based on how I feel about you.
3: Mm. Have any of those conversations led to big pivots in the company?
1: Yeah, yeah, um, we we rebooted a battery program that it would have been way more comfortable to believe we were headed in the right direction. But um, two engineers were pacing around in the back of the building one day, kind of in the R&D area, and they just had that like nervous engineer look. And I knew,
3: <laughs> I think we all know what you're talking about.
1: Yeah. I was like, don't go ask him what's up. Don't do it. Um, and, I, you know, but I'm a glutton for punishment. So I'm like, what's up? And you know, they looked at their shoes and they, they also had that look like, I, I don't know if I should tell you this. Um, you know, and one of the things that's like, you, you don't coming out of the, the military chain of command is very much emphasized. You gotta be really careful. It, it cuts both ways. Um, you want to empower your senior leaders, so I don't. I don't want to burrow down into my manager's organizations and imply that I don't trust them. And at the same time, I should be receiving input and feedback um, from everybody in the organization that I efficiently can. I shouldn't see the world through the lens of my five direct reports. Um, so you 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 want to be careful. Um, you don't want to um, give the impression you don't trust your executives. But sometimes a specific executive might miss something and and it's your job to know what's going on. So anyway, they, they basically were like, you know, they started with like, we've got one concern. I was like, oh, well that's not bad if, and they're like, yeah, but we're concerned about that too. And it, you know, and I, and I was like, are you saying this is going to be a complete reboot on this program? And they were like, yup, it's going to cost us more money and more time to fix this program than just to throw that design away and start from scratch. And the cost implications of that, and the revenue implications of that, were significant. So, what's,
3: what's significant?
1: Um, I mean, it was tens of millions of dollars of revenue that was going to be pushed out. It was going to be. It was going to involve frustrating some customers in twenty, late twenty fifteen, early twenty sixteen, who thought they were getting the new Hot Bus um, exactly when we said Hot Bus. I yeah, like that. Was, <laughs> we have. Um, it, we have a lot of fun with bus R&D. <laughs> We're like probably the only company that gets really excited about um, R&D on buses. But, um, but it, was a, it was absolutely the right decision. The, the, the path we went down was safer. It was better margin. Um, it's a way better product. It's like twice as good of the product as we would have done. Um, but that was the toughest. Remember, I was at a football game. Um, you know, some, I think a banker invited us to like a box game or whatever, which sounds like a lot of fun. And I was so anxious about that decision that like, I wasn't even paying paying attention to the football game. And our head of sales and marketing, he walked over and he was like, are you all right? And I was like, oh yeah, yeah. And he was like, why don't you just go home, get a good night's sleep? Like he could tell that something was on my mind. And it was that kind of decision, like heads or tails. But we brought it to our board at the end of 2015. And we were like, here's the deal. And we're gonna have to bite the bullet and spend this amount of money and take down the revenue for the first couple quarters in the next year. And we need to make this decision together. And the board backed us. So it was important that like that, I felt like the recommendation definitely had to come from us, but the decision we made as a board.
3: Uh, so speaking of dealing with a lot, you have been married for 16 years. That's right. You have three kids. Mm-hmm. What's it like being a husband and a dad and a CEO?
1: Um, it's better than being a CEO. So it's <laughs> uh, it's it's really awesome. Um, you know, I got I got married young. Um, I married. How old were you? Uh, it's pretty embarrassing. I think it was like 23, and Jen was 22. I look at the photos now and it like, I feel a little bad because I'm like, wow, that girl was way too young to get married. Uh, like, (laughs) um, Like, so, um, you know, we were, we dated in college and like, you know, it just, it just worked. Um, and, uh, you know, we had, our son was born my first year in grad school. So he's 13 now. Um, and it's, you know, one of the challenging things is like, I, I really like my life with my family. There are people in business, we've all worked with them, who business and business travel, you know, in some ways is the thing they would rather be doing. Um, that's not the case with me. And at the same time, like, I, I definitely feel like I should be, you know, a productive adult. Um, you don't necessarily have to do that in Silicon Valley. That, that can be a little awkward when your parents are like, well, why do you, or your kids are like, why do you work? And you're like, you did not grow up in the Midwest. Um, <laughs> but uh no, it's it's great. Like I um I, I try to structure my travel to be so efficient that sometimes it's not a good idea. Um, but I would rather be exhausted and get one more night with my wife and my kids. Um, you know, and, and that's probably the only opportunity cost I care about at this point. Like I, there's nothing I'd rather do professionally than Proterra. Um, and I'll do this, I've I've said it before, I'll do this till the board basically gets sick of me doing it. And I'll have no hard feelings when they're like, Someone else should take on this dream job of working all the time to transition an industrial transportation market. Um, (laughs) But, you know, a a great example of this, like Monday, um, our kids just started their various summer camps, which is total mayhem for a family because during the year, things are relatively structured and then you smash that structure in the summer and everybody's going in different ways. So it's like Spanish camp and junior lifeguards and tennis so on Monday, I had the opportunity to pick up my son from Junior Lifeguards and a friend of mine who runs a little fishing outfit called Cowboy Fishing in Half Moon Bay sent me a text and he said, Salmon Fishing just started. If you can get to the docks by 2 p.m., you can come out with us. And I was like, man, I really should not do that. Like quarter's almost over. Um, but I looked at my calendar and I would have had to schedule reschedule three meetings and they were reschedulable. And I thought... Aiden, my son, is growing so fast. He's taller than my wife already. And I was like, and some of my favorite memories in my life have been stuff that I've done with the kids. And so I was like, you know what? Rescheduling those three meetings, picked up Aiden from junior lifeguards, um, went out on the boat, caught four salmon. And it was just like, and that probably gives me the energy to, you know, go back in the next day. So most of the time my workday ends more like 7, 8, 9 p.m. But, you know, occasionally saying like, you know what? I'm gonna go all in on just doing something awesome with my son or daughter today. is super important.
3: Nice. Last question before our high voltage round. Uh, tell us about what Proterra looks like in five years.
1: Um, so in some ways, it looks a lot or very similar to what it looks like today. In that, I um, I'd be really disappointed if we aren't still dominating electric vehicle market share for our category, and. Um, I'm biased, but the reason I say that is I look at the investments we're making in product and I look at how good our people are and I just don't see anyone jumping us in terms of product. In fact, we tend to lap ourselves. So we get sick of our own product and then like 12 to 24 months, we do something else. Um, Makes it super easy for our marketing team to deal with. (laughs) Um, You know, so I I would expect us to still be dominating and dominating, I'd say, at least 50% market share of electric vehicle purchases. Um, I want to have several fleets in the United States completely transitioned off of fossil fuels. So I hope uh, like Park City, Cal- or Park City, Utah and Stockton, California should be some of the closest ones where we could l- really pull the cord and they don't buy any more diesel at all. We actually have a small fleet in South Carolina already that hasn't bought diesel in years. Um, I also want to see Proterra helping the rest of the heavy duty vehicle sector Get off of diesel faster. I don't necessarily want Proterra to take on too much too fast, but there's stuff that we've figured out in buses that applies um, almost drag and drop into other big heavy vehicles that start and stop all the time. So I, I hope five years from now, in whatever way we can, whether it's hardware or software, we're also supporting the beginnings of a really vibrant school bus market, for example.
3: Very cool. All right. Our high voltage round. These are very quick questions with very quick answers. Question one, if you were an animal, what animal would you be and why?
1: Um, I would love to be a wolf. Um, I like wolves a lot. I think um, just the way they operate, I think is awesome. They're really smart. They take care of each other. Um, and I adopted a wolf at a wolf ranch in Southern California. So
3: You have a wolf?
1: I sponsored a wolf. Sponsored Her, her name's wolf. Ayasha.
3: Wow. Wow. I, that's, one, that's a beautiful name. Two, um, Scott, Scott Clevena, the founder of Green Tech Media. He grew up with wolves. It's on a previous What It Takes podcast. That's awesome. If you want to listen to it. Um, if you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be?
1: Um, a smoke jumper.
3: <laughs> Say more.
1: That, do you know what that is? No. <laughs> um, so those are, I think those are the, Coolest guys in the world because they do like all the hardcore stuff, like parachute out of planes and get flown in on helicopters. But they fight forest fires; they don't have to shoot at people. So, like, if you can do all the like badass stuff that you get to do in the military, but like you save a forest or a bunch of homes, that that would be a pretty cool gig.
3: Sounds great. I was thinking very literally about smoke jumper. It's not what I thought it was. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No. Other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success?
1: Um everybody says their mom and dad um so i like my parents are good mentors my big sister um is a college professor and um we have very different sides of the brain she's a theater and fine arts professor um but like i bounce a lot of stuff off of her and it helps me a lot to talk to someone who thinks about problems in a very different way than i do
3: when have you failed
1: um When I was at Kleiner and we tried to save Fisker, that was really frustrating. That company should not have failed. And uh, I got sent in twice um, to help, somewhat similar to how I I got sent into Proterra. So occasionally I would get sent in kind of like an operating partner to work on things. And that was such a bummer because um, with better execution, Fisker could have been, I don't know if it would have been as successful as Tesla, but it did not need to end the way it did. Uh, there's a lot of capital and a lot of good employees there. Um, and fundamentally it was a good idea. It just wasn't well executed. So that was tough. I I hate to see important stuff in environmental technology fail.
3: Is there something that you thought was true that you no longer believe?
1: Um, man, that's a tough question. (laughs) Um, you know, I, I, I probably um, I have a very different view um, of, of kind of the way the world works from a foreign policy perspective. I definitely say that, like, um, I have a very different view on what like conflict and, you know, these sterile terms like force projection that are used on CNN and stuff like that. Um, you know, so I, I'm I'm by no means a pacifist, but like I like when I watch the news now, um, like I definitely think a lot more deeply about like the cost in either direction of doing something or not doing something, from a foreign policy perspective.
3: What is your best trait?
1: Um, I think I'm fair. I, I the biggest thing I try to be is just like I try to hear people out and um, and and just like try to be decent. Um, you know, one of the neat things about being a CEO is you do get to make decisions, and if you're not an asshole. Um, you can you can fix a lot of stuff that's relatively easy to fix, but is a really big deal in people's lives.
3: If you were known for just one thing in the world, what would it be?
1: Um, gosh, these are really. Why didn't you send me these ahead of time? <laughs> I intend <laughs> for this exact reason. <laughs> um, boy, I don't know. That's a. Uh, I. I'd, I'd want to be known or I'd want to be thought of as having been a good person, like a decent person.
3: Uh, finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because.
1: Bad management.
3: Success is.
1: um Has a lot to do with luck.
3: <laughs> <laughs> if I could have done one thing differently, I would
1: have done a dual major in engineering and business versus en- finance and history.
3: <laughs> I'm most proud of,
1: um, that that's hard. Cause I, I um, I'm very proud of the family I've created and I'm also really proud of the work I've done in the last 10 years in clean energy. I'm, I'm more proud of the work that I've done in clean energy than anything else I've done in my life. Um, You know, so that that is really the tension that I'm constantly managing is like on the one hand, I would spend like every waking minute that I could with my kids. And on the other hand, if my generation doesn't win and doesn't make a lot of progress on this, like we are going to screw up a lot of stuff irreparably. So, um, you know, I I would not be proud of myself if I just put my feet up and like had a mug that said best dad in the world. And at the same time, you know, we end up at like, you know, the worst um, of the scenarios around climate change.
3: Last question: To build a successful company, what it takes is
1: Um, great people.
3: Great. With that, please join me in giving a round of applause to Ryan Popple. (laughs)